Cheney, Goodman, Schwerner. A special report on the three workers for civil rights still missing in Mississippi and a review of the motives and forces behind those who plan to carry on the work. From Critical Frequency, I'm B. Beeman, and this is Peace of Mind. I'm a singer, songwriter, and producer. I'm a dad, and I'm an American. Peace of Mind is an experiment. It's my new album, but I'm releasing it as a podcast. Today's episode is called Eeny Meeny, and the theme of this episode is voter suppression. Our guests are Dale Ho, director of the Voting Rights Project at the ACLU, and Taz Amen of 18 Million Rising and the host of the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. America is this beacon of democracy, right? So we should be able to vote here. We shouldn't broadcast democracy while our own citizens are deprived. The hypocrisy about democracy, okay? Whether it's purging people from voter rolls or gerrymandering or mass incarceration, it's a multi-pronged attack. This is something that people don't understand fully. This is a crazy, messed up thing that is happening, and most people have no idea. I think if people knew what was going on, they'd be a lot more mad and they'd be a lot more resolute about what can be done. And I got to speak with the person who knows more about this issue than anyone else. I'm Dale Ho, director of the ACLU Voting Rights Project. We started our conversation by talking about the most important piece of voting legislation of the last hundred years. When I tell the story of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, I start with what voter registration rates were like in the states of the former Confederacy in the 1960s. In Alabama in 1964, the African-American voter registration rate was below 20 percent. In Mississippi, it was less than 7 percent. Uh, and that's why Mississippi was chosen as the site of Freedom Summer in 1964. The South was not a democracy as late as the 1960s. I mean, the country was already almost 200 years old. And in the South, what we had was really something akin to a one-party authoritarian state. There was not a sort of healthy two-party system. Huge swaths of the population were disenfranchised by law, by force, by violence, by murder. Now, Mr. President, yeah. uh, Mr. Hoover wanted me to call you, sir, immediately and tell you that the FBI has uh, found three bodies six miles southwest of Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the civil rights workers were last seen. Wanted to let you know right away, sir. It took the 1965 Voting Rights Act to begin to change that. By the 1970s, literacy tests and poll taxes, which were the two chief types of laws that were used to disenfranchise black Americans, were gone. And registration rates amongst African Americans skyrocketed. In most of the South, by 1970, the registration gap between whites and African Americans uh, was down to single digits. So that law, um, it's hard to overstate the importance of it and the kind of change that it catalyzed. Turns out there was still a lot more work that needed to be done, 
right after those registration rates skyrocketed. A lot of localities in the South switched to other means to try to preserve white supremacy and white political power. For instance, changing elections to at-large elections instead of district-based. So instead of a county electing its five commissioners from five districts, some of which presumably would elect an African-American, they switched to a system where the county as a whole would elect all five members of the county commission. And because the county's majority white and because voting is racially polarized, literally the same segregationists are getting elected in the 1970s as we had in the 1960s when we still had poll taxes and literacy tests. So there was still a, a tremendous amount of work to be done. Real political power wasn't shared overnight and it wasn't shared willingly, but the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was the sort of, I think, first step in breaking the hold of white supremacy on political institutions in the South. And then in 2013, another drastic change to voting rights came about. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. In 2013, the Supreme Court issued an opinion in a case called Shelby County versus Holder, which effectively immobilized the most important part of the Voting Rights Act. The key provision of the Voting Rights Act was a requirement that states and counties that had the worst histories of discrimination in voting had to get federal approval before making any changes to their voting laws. Normally, with civil rights violations, you sue, and while the case plays itself out, you accumulate a certain amount of damages, you get compensated if you win, to essentially try to make you whole. Voting isn't like that. If you get discriminated against, if you get denied your right to vote, and you bring a lawsuit. That lawsuit can take months or years to unfold, and elections are happening while that lawsuit is pending. Uh, you might win that lawsuit eventually and prove that the state discriminated or disenfranchised you, but there's no way to be made whole at that point. There's no way to be fully compensated for losing your right to vote in elections that have already happened and can't be run again. So what the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did in recognition of the unique context that elections present is it made the states get federal approval before making any changes to their voting laws to make sure that those changes were not discriminatory. The logic behind it, obviously, is that if they do discriminate, we want to stop them before they do it and stop that discrimination from tainting an election. And then in a 2013 Supreme Court decision uh, by a five to four vote, the conservative majority of the Supreme Court struck it down as unconstitutional. So it was a pretty devastating blow. In the immediate aftermath of that decision, we saw more than a dozen states that had been freed from federal supervision enact laws that made it harder for people to register to vote or cast a ballot. And we've been digging out of that ever since, trying to push back against the wave of voter suppression laws that we've seen passed in the wake of Shelby County. Was there anything like where you were just like very frustrated with not just the decision, but the way it was dealt? Yeah, it was a very frustrating experience working on that case. The whole conversation seemed to take place in this really abstract place about the philosophy of state sovereignty and not about the actual lived reality of voters of color and the barriers that they're experiencing in these parts of the country and have been for the past pretty much since our country was founded. I had a question about how whether, in your opinion, 
Shelby County versus Holder affected the 2016 election, but I think it's probably yes. But did it affect the 2014 election as well right afterwards? I mean, you had a strict voter identification requirement in Texas where you could vote with, say, a concealed weapons permit, but not with a student ID card. That was a law that had been blocked under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Literally the day of the decision, the Attorney General of Texas, now Governor Greg Abbott, tweeted out uh, voter IDs back, and that law went into effect uh, after the Shelby County decision. So it's hard to say exactly how much of an effect these laws had on the outcomes of elections. But from our perspective, you know, the problem isn't just skewing the electorate. It's denying individuals the most fundamental right that they have in our democracy for no good reason. In 2011, Kansas enacted a law that required you to show a birth certificate or a passport when you register to vote to prove that you're a citizen. And most people don't carry those kinds of documents around with them. So it made voter registration drives impossible. That law stopped about 30,000 people from registering to vote in the first three years of its operation. Over 40% of the voters affected were under the age of 30, which isn't surprising to us because the law only affected new registration applicants. So it affected young people the most. And when you look at what happened in Florida and when you look at what happened in Kansas around the 2012 election, it's, it's not an accident that they're targeting voters of color and young people, because those are precisely the demographic groups that surged as percentages of the electorate in 2008 and carried Barack Obama to victory, right? So you have these states responding in a very specific way, not making voting harder for everyone, but making voting harder for those precise segments of the electorate that emerged in record numbers in 2008 and were decisive in that election. So those are examples from the registration phase. We also saw early voting cutbacks also in Florida, in Ohio, in North Carolina, and then new requirements on election day in the form of strict uh, identification laws that require you to show one of a limited set of form of government issued photo ID cards. So we've seen a lot of different kinds of tactics in the wake of the Shelby County decision. When you think about white supremacy, you think about violence and intimidation. Uh, you don't think about the soft power that is often used. But that soft power is probably the most effective way to keep white supremacy. And one of the states that has been a hotbed for this voter suppression issue, namely with voter ID laws, is the state of Kansas and a man named Chris Kobach. <laughs> I don't know if it's a coincidence that Chris is spelled with a K and Kobach is spelled with a K and Kansas is also spelled with a K. But that kind of just dovetails right into it. The Chris Kobach case in Kansas is probably the most high-profile voter suppression case in America. And the ACLU took Chris Kobach to court over this law. And the lead attorney was Dale Ho. The Kansas Secretary of State, the chief election official in Kansas, a man named Chris Kobach, who's has a long career demagoguing anti-immigrant laws and policies. He's the author of the notorious Arizona SB 1070, that anti-immigrant law. And he convinced the state legislatures that the state of Kansas had some 
problem of fraudulent voting by non-citizens as if, you know, people make the long trek up from Central and South America <laughs> to the heartland of America so they can vote for Kansas, I don't know, agricultural commissioner, Kansas insurance commissioner, as if this is why people uproot their lives. And he's married his xenophobic agenda with his voter suppression agenda to champion this law in Kansas, which was replicated in Arizona um, and Georgia and Alabama, demanding people show a birth certificate when they register to vote, which you know no other state in the country requires. And what was, I think, really interesting about this trial was that it was his chance to show his cards, show his evidence. He's been saying for years that there's this massive epidemic of voter fraud and of non-citizen voting in particular. And he can get away with those kind of vague, you know, assertions unsupported with any evidence in policy debates, on TV, or even in legislatures. But in court, you got to have evidence. So we asked, what's your evidence? And he came up with a total of 39 non-citizens who had registered to vote in Kansas dating back to 1998. So about two per year over a 20-year period. And then when you looked at the records of their registration applications, um, a number of them um, in response to the question, are you a citizen? Yes or no? Check no, which means they shouldn't have been registered, that it was a mistake by an elections official to put them on the rolls. So a lot of these cases were people who had made innocent mistakes or who had been registered by state officials not doing their jobs. You know, a total of six of them had ever voted, right? And that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? If like the whole idea is they want to commit fraud, they want to get on the roll so that they can influence elections. How come only 39 of them did it? And then how come only six of those 39 ever voted over a 20-year period? That was one side of the ledger. The other side of the ledger was over 30,000 Kansans, citizens, who had been disenfranchised by this law. He kept saying, Chris Kobach, during the trial that the evidence that he's found is just the tip of the iceberg. And what the federal judge in our case found when she struck down the law was that there is no iceberg, just an icicle her words, not mine. And this is a judge that was appointed by George W. Bush. So I'm not talking about some sort of like bleeding heart liberal who would naturally be predisposed towards us. You know, I think judges across the political spectrum, when they actually have to look at the evidence that a man like Chris Kobach has and see how paltry it is, understand that this narrative about rampant fraud, it's a myth. And it's been used to justify disenfranchising tens of thousands of Americans. I was reading a little bit about this question that the current administration mm -hmm. um, is trying to add to the next census. Mm -hmm. And it's not an immediate thing that people will notice, but next census is 2020, I believe. And yeah. uh, can you elaborate on, on that issue and why it matters? Sure. So the Trump administration wants to put a question 
about citizenship on the census. Um, we haven't had one on it for the last 70 years. The last census that had a citizenship question on it was the 1950 census. And times are pretty different today than they were in 1950. We have a larger percentage of our population that is born outside of the United States. We have a very, very contentious debate about immigration happening right now in this country. And we have an administration that has shown that it's willing to pick people up and deport them um, when they're in sensitive places um, where no administration previously had engaged in immigration enforcement efforts. I mean, people being picked up at hospitals, schools, courthouses, even while going to check in um, with their local Immigration and Customs Enforcement office. So it's a very charged time. And every social scientist that has looked at this has said that if you put that question on there, you're going to get a dramatic decline in the number of people who respond to the census. And that's a really, really bad thing. The census is supposed to count every person in the United States. doesn't matter if you're an adult or a child, a citizen or a non-citizen, foreign-born or native-born. And we use that count for the next 10 years for innumerable purposes. We use it for dividing up representation in Congress. We use it for allocating votes in the Electoral College, which obviously selects the president. We use it for the distribution of $900 billion in federal funds annually. And state and local governments and businesses and civic organizations all use the census for their various activities as well. It's critically important that we get that count right. The addition of this question, everyone who looks at this, including the Census Bureau itself, has determined it's going to screw up the count. And it's going to be the worst in communities that have higher percentages of non-citizens, immigrants, Hispanics, people who live in mixed status households. And it's, it's those communities that are going to see the biggest decline in census participation and, as a consequence, the biggest decline in representation and resources. So it's a disastrous thing, I think, for the country as a whole to get an inaccurate census like this, but it will be keenly felt in those communities that have higher percentages of immigrants. I mean, it seems like it's, yet again, a very specific calculated attack. Right. It's just such a multifaceted thing. Mm-hmm. Voting and representation is only part of it. Right. And right. it's pretty scary. I mean, it's a multi-pronged attack on immigrant communities, but it's totally consistent with almost everything this administration has done when it comes to immigration generally and immigrants living in the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, for most of us, for me and for the listeners, like it, for somebody to think so insidiously about how to screw people over is the last thing on our minds. So right. <laughs> it's, it's so jarring. You know, their agenda is made plain by how deceitful the administration has been about its goals. They've come out and said, we need this to enforce the Voting Rights Act, right? That law that we were talking about earlier that the Supreme Court had largely immobilized. And the Voting Rights Act has been around since 1965. And it's been enforced by the Department of Justice and by private lawyers um, without a question about citizenship on the census during that entire time, without any problems. So we've never needed a question on citizenship on the census in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act. This administration has no interest in enforcing the Voting Rights Act. They haven't filed a single lawsuit 
under the Voting Rights Act. So the idea that they actually need this information to enforce the Voting Rights Act, it's laughable on its face. And then when you look at some of the internal documents, the Census Bureau itself was telling the administration, if you need better citizenship information for the Voting Rights Act, we can get that to you without putting a question on the census. We have other kinds of data, like from the Social Security Administration, that we could easily pull together. Uh, Why don't you just meet with us? And what we learned in the course of litigating this case is that Attorney General Sessions personally instructed Department of Justice personnel not to meet with the Census Bureau. We also learned that Wilbur Ross, who's the Secretary of Commerce, who oversees the Census Bureau, was interested in putting this question on the census pretty much as soon as he became Commerce Secretary, but he lied about that fact to Congress. He also testified that he hadn't had any conversations with anyone in the White House about this. And we learned in the course of litigating the case that, in fact, he had conversations with Steve Bannon, who was then the chief political advisor in the White House, and with Chris Kobach, who was the vice chair of the President's Commission on Election Integrity. So it's pretty clear why they did it. You can tell by the effects, but you can also tell by the way that this process unfolded and the just sheer mendacity of the administration when it comes to explaining how, when, and why they made the decision to add the citizenship question. What are some of the most common misconceptions about voting rights? Sure. I realize you ha- you don't have to change public opinion so much. <laughs> uh, more, uh, you're in a courtroom changing opinions. But for the public, what are some common misconceptions about voting rights? I think one of the most common misconceptions about voting rights is that people don't vote because they don't care. We're not even in the top 30 in terms of turnout rates amongst Western democracies. And people say, well, that means Americans just don't care about politics. I don't think that's true. People really do care about politics. What a lot of people don't understand is that we make voting much harder in this country than most other Western democracies do. The first thing we do is we make registration the responsibility of the citizen rather than the government. In most Western democracies, the government is responsible for making sure that all of its citizens um, who are eligible to vote are registered to vote. And that little change, that makes a big difference because a lot of times people don't remember that they have to register 30 days in advance of the election, 20 days in advance of the election, or maybe they've registered, but they've moved. And the media coverage doesn't really pick up until the last two weeks before the election. And then, you know, boom, it's too late. Right. Um, There's that. There's the fact that for a lot of people, especially, you know, working class folks, um, getting the time off either from work or away from childcare responsibilities on a Tuesday um, can be pretty challenging, right? Um, Having to wait in the lines that we sometimes experience. So I think there's a real misconception about the lived reality of working class people and how challenging it can be sometimes to get to the polls on election day. In this world of Netflix and chill, everything's on demand. Voting is about as hard as it can be. (laughs) Yeah, nothing is on demand with voting. Right. I mean, you, you know, there, there's like almost 10 states where you can't register to vote online, right? Um, and you, you try to talk to someone who's 18 years old and tell them you have to like download and print a form and find a stamp, <laughs> right? I mean, it's insane. In the kind of world that we live in today, for us not to adapt our voting systems to that, it's just madness. What can ordinary citizens who aren't brilliant lawyers do to support this fight? Because obviously, 
you know, there's lots of different things we can do. Right. I think the first thing people need to do is educate themselves about the registration and voting requirements where they live. That's number one. And then educate yourself about who's making those policy decisions. Sometimes those local elections administrators are elected themselves. So educate yourself about what their records are and positions are on voter access and make that a part of your decision about whether or not to support them. If they're not elected, if they're appointed, find out who they're appointed by and make that a part of your decision whether or not to support those politicians. Because I'll tell you, most politicians across the ideological spectrum don't want to tinker with the voting system. They're happy with it as it is because, after all, it produced them, right? There's a lot of inertia, even amongst progressive elected officials sometimes, to make the kinds of changes that we need to see greater um, access and participation. So is, is the first step. The second step um, after all of that is look at ways in which we can take power ourselves. In a lot of states, there are opportunities for citizens themselves to vote on changes to their election system. Florida, just this year, voted to enfranchise 1.4 million people living in that state. People who had committed a, a, a felony offense but had finished their sentences, completed all conditions, and are now back in society. Previously, its constitution had disenfranchised those people for life. One single offense, right? And the citizens of Florida took matters into their own hands because the politicians wouldn't do anything about it. And they changed that. And four other states in 2018 passed pro-voter ballot initiatives. So I, I think that there are real ways for citizens themselves to take matters into their own hands and make the changes that they want to see happen. Dale made a really good point about what we can do as ordinary citizens to create change. And my next guest is a really great example of what one person can do. Taz Ahmed is an artist and activist and has been doing civic engagement and voter advocacy work for over a decade now. I asked her what inspired her to get into that work. When I was in college... I was like, I'm going to be an environmentalist. I got an environmental studies degree. I wanted to do environmental organizing. So I went to D.C. And three months after I moved to D.C. was when September 11th happened. And that really shook me because I think at that time I was 21 and I didn't really understand what it meant to be a person of color in the U.S. Mainly because if you were brown before September 11th, it was just a different experience. You didn't feel the xenophobia as hard as you feel it now. At the time, I was working for an organization that was getting out the vote for environmental kids. Here I was in my job doing environmental organizing, and yet brown people were getting locked up, sent to Guantanamo Bay. People were being disappeared. Mm -hmm. I couldn't fly. I stopped being able to fly without a special phone call being made. I would hear, you know, clicks on my phone. And then um, about six months into it, my mom called me, and she said that the FBI came to our house and that they were asking for my cousin's birth certificate. And um, my mom let the FBI in. And she talked to them and then they left. And I mean, now we know better. We know our rights in a way we didn't. But in that phone call, she said that it doesn't matter how long she's been in the U.S., she'll always feel like a second-class citizen. And that's something that I always hold with me in all the work that I do is that this is kind of the injustice that we're fighting against. So I, I did that work for a couple of years working in the environmental voting movement. 
Then for the 2004 elections, I really wanted to get out the brown vote. I was organizing young voters, and I was in this movement of people that were doing the work. And no one in that group thought it was important to organize people that looked like me. Then I was like, screw it. I'm just going to do it myself. Drafted this proposal. I got an organization off the ground within a couple months. Savvy. I worked with um, South Asian Americans leading together to be the fiscal sponsor. I got together all these brown people who I had not known before. And the plan was to get young people to run a 10-week campaign on their college campus, registering people to vote, getting them out. We made up stickers that said, I'm South Asian and I vote. And we had door hangers that were highlighting South Asian issues with racial profiling. It was great. It was a really good first experience. It was also really good to know that I did something because no one else was doing anything for South Asians or Muslims at the time. Um, now, when I look at all the organizing that's happening, there's so many South Asians organizing to vote. There's so many Muslims organizing to vote, so much younger than me too. So they don't know how hard it was when, when I was doing it. I didn't have access to Muslim or South Asian names. So I would go through a phone book and I would just look through the last names and I would rip out the pages that looked brown. And then I would say, okay, these are the people that were phone banking. Now I have the technology to be much better at doing this work. But, you know, back in 2004, that's what we had to get out the vote. And were you involved this last election? Yeah, I've basically been involved with elections since 2004. I ended up working for Asian American advocacy organizations, and I would run very strategic voter engagement campaigns where we would do in-language phone banks. And I got super burned out by all the field work. And I got really excited about this job that I have now at 18 Million Rising, where I get to do civic engagement work and fun organizing. We're basically an Asian American version of Move On, but it's all digital in figuring out how do we utilize the internet for organizing people. That's been a lot of fun because in addition to all the voting work that I was doing, I was also having a very robust online life. So I understood the power of the internet being able to form political identity and to move people. Have you found like young people more engaged all of a sudden in this era of Donald Trump? The thing about young people is there's always like a new new batch of them. <laughs> <laughs> so during the 2004 elections, it was the bush Kerry election. So it was really poignant for young people at that time. And then when Obama ran for office, 2008, that was a really big election for the people at the time. So I think there's always a batch of young people where everyone's like, this is the last time that we're ever going to have to experience this. And you're like, no, buddy, this is like a long fight. We're going to have to be doing this every four years for the rest of our lives. I do hope there's more young people, but every passionate young person I meet that's civically engaged, there's another young person who's like, when's, when is the election again? Like, yeah. but they're just not, not there. We're battling a really big disinformation society and system like the people that are unengaged aren't unengaged because of their own personal apathy they're fighting a system that's forcing them to be apathetic we have a president that lies about everything we have russians hacking into our social media to mm -hmm. make us think one way when it's really a different way so like i think there's this kind of like distrust of everything is there something you've come across uh where you're like surprised that that people don't know something about the right to vote or, or 
voting in America? Uh, I, I mean, I've been doing it so long, I'm not surprised anymore. I think the systematic oppression that we experience in the society are the things that we often forget. The fact that people are getting purged from the roles, people are getting convinced not to show up to the polls, people are getting turned away at the polls. I think that voters just kind of like think that it's their own fault. And I think the fact that they don't know that they're fighting upstream, you know, that's the big surprising thing to me. That's what I want to get across to people. Is like, you know, you have rights as a voter. You have rights as a person that lives here. Your vote is going to matter. But I think that's the other thing, is convincing people that voting makes a difference. Yeah. Because I think that connection's not being made. Tazamed is currently an activist in residence at UCLA. Check out her work at tazzystar.com. Coming up, I'll break down today's song, Eeny Meeny. But first, a word about another great podcast I think you'll enjoy. From HuffPost, this is Shut Out, a podcast about the fight to vote in America. I'm your host, Catherine St. Louis. These days, officials often present voting restrictions as race-neutral and necessary. But make no mistake, voter suppression targets minority voters. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I started working on this song a few years ago, and I dug through whatever instruments that was my computer at the time. There's something to it. There's something funky about it. It was like kind of a little bit like Fela Funk. Um, that's Fela Kuti, Nigerian legend. And I liked it a lot. It was a little bit corny, <laughs> but the parts in it were really good. But it didn't have anything to it. It was just a beat, essentially. And as I was writing, making this album about a year ago, I had developed songs about Trump and Russia, immigration, gender inequality, and mental health. And something that really bothers me, something that, as you can tell from the episode that you just listened to, is voter suppression. Whether it's here or in some other country, it's wrong and it's sinister. It was something that I wanted to shine a light on. So I started messing with, with lyrical ideas and with the beat going. One line that kind of came to my mind right away was Eeny Meeny Miny Mo." It's like a schoolyard song and it has a racist history to it. And it's something I've known. The N-word has been used for the word tiger. And part of the core of voter suppression is disenfranchisement of people of color, whether they're black or Latino or, or Native American, for that matter. And so this eeny, meeny, miny, mo with its racist history, I mean, you can imagine little kids saying that. It'd be cut right through you. It just sang so well, and I wanted to use it, but I didn't want to just, like, rip it. And I switched it up, and I, I changed it to Catch a Tiger by the Toe if you holler, let him vote. Because a lot of this voter suppression is just under the surface. Just like, oh, I yeah, I took the candy out of the jar, but I didn't know that was wrong. And so people get away with it. This song has a lot of my favorite lines. Like, careful what you say, you never know who's listening. Alexa's got a mind its own. And it starts off with a line that a lot of people of color, 
black, brown, beige, whatever, get this feeling of uh, people crossing the street. Covered all my bases, come on, baby, face it, cross the street when I walk You're on the same side of the street. And you're walking, coming together, walking towards each other. Sometimes the other person crosses the street in a sometimes smooth manner and sometimes a very unsmooth manner. Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you know. If you know, you know. But you always wonder. You know, it goes gerrymander, jerry curl, flex your wallet, rule the world. Catch a tiger by the toe. If he hollers, let him vote. If he Gerrymander spelled G-E-R-R-Y-M-A-N-D-E-R. And it's named after some guy named Jerry, I guess. Fusilli Jerry is probably what his name was. No, let me find this. Um, Elbridge Jerry was a powerful voice in the founding of the nation. Today, he's best known for the political practice with an amphibious origin. Because shape of his redistricting looked like a salamander on a map. Um, So... That's nerdy and weird. There's an acoustic guitar that plays in there, and it seems maybe slightly out of place, but I wanted to have some sort of, like, organic kind of thing in there. There's a lot of pulsing, almost robotic things going on, and I wanted something a little bit more organic. And I was inspired by a funkadelic song called Can You Get to That off Maggot Brain. There's a guitar that's going, almost sounds like a siren. And later it starts to sound like a, I don't know, like a plucking. I'm, I'm plucking on the guitar strings very fast. And then I'm sliding my finger down, down the fretboard over the string, not pressing down the string, just kind of like resting my finger and dragging it across. And it makes those harmonics pretty crazy a lot of physics going on in there and the uh, amplitudes of the waves and the nodes and all this stuff that you're changing as you move your finger but I got the production idea for that from a Kendrick Lamar song called Mad City shout out to Soundwave producer on that That's a crazy track. And at the end of the song, you you hear me saying, this ain't Suffragette City. This ain't Suffragette Town. That was just like an ad lib I did late one night. And I think I was laying down the double to the vocal because there's a double vocal set lower than the lead vocal. And it's, it sits there and it helps cut through if you do a good take. And I did a second take, and I was just running through, and then at the end, there was nothing at that time. And I just started singing this line. This ain't suffragette city. The song this is about voting and voting rights and voter suppression, town. and there's a David Bowie song called Suffragette City. I always liked that song. I just threw that in there at the end of the song. Um, it just came to me, I guess, and I was like, oh, that's pretty this good. It, it has a good feel to it. Today. This ain't suffragette 
And now here's the full song. You can listen to the music from the show as well as all my albums on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon. Be sure to join us next week. We'll be discussing immigration. I'll be speaking with Ahalanar Lanandam, another ACLU All-Star, Paula Mendoza, a filmmaker and activist who recently traveled with the migrant caravan, and Todd Schulte, president of Forward.us. Covered all my bases, come on baby face it, cross the street when I walked in. I ain't a magician, work under suspicion, guilty as a goddamn sin. Careful what you say, you never knows, listen, let's Peace of Mind is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Our producers are Katie Ross, Jen Rice, and Amy Westervelt. All music for the show is written and performed by me, B. Beeman. Additional editing by Elliot Peltzman. I'll be performing in Boston, New York, and D.C. in April. Check out peaceofmindpod.com for details. For bonus material and to support the show, please head to peaceofmindpod.com. You can also support us by leaving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. And join us next week for some peace of mind.